I'm going to jump straight into um, our verse for tonight. Um, so, beginning with um, John 3, uh, verses 14 to 21. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must, must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of the light, because their deeds were, their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. It's a good, happy thought to start off with. And I'll just jump straight to... Um, so the beginning of that verse, it references um, Numbers 21, so I'm going to read that out for you as well. So the bronze snake... They travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edium. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, Why have you brought, up, brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when, you spoke, when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on the pole. Then when anyone was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze when anyone's bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lives. So the first, the first verse I read today was from John 3. Um, and just to set some context, it starts off with um, Jesus is speaking to uh, Nicodemus. And basically, uh, Nicodemus has come out in the middle of the night to come and meet Jesus. Um, we know from the text that Nicodemus is a Pharisee and that he is part of the Jewish council. Um, now, theologians believe that Nicodemus has either come out at night for either two reasons. Um, they think either first it's going to be out of respect because um, they don't want, he doesn't want to interrupt Jesus' work during the day um, or out of cowardice and fear of what the other Pharisee could think. Um, so they've already spoken for a while when we get to this verse. Um, Jesus has spoken to Nicodemus about being born again and then Jesus explains that the only way um, is through his ultimate death on the cross. Um, and then the choice each person has to follow him and to live in the light. Um, so tonight I'm going to be looking at what it looks like for us as followers of Christ to live in the light. 
Um, firstly, by being able to walk, to be able to walk in the light, we must first understand our darkness. Secondly, in order for us to choose the light, we must understand God's response to our sin. And lastly, to live in the light, we must look to to live in the light. We must learn to look towards our salvation. Our, look towards our sal salvation. No, so, sa saviour. Saviour. <laughs> there's a word in there somewhere. I'm getting it wrong. Okay. Number, point number one, the nature of our sin. So John 3.14 starts off with that verse in Numbers. Um, and it's about the Israelites and they've come out of Egypt and they're wandering through the desert. Um, they've just successfully had an attack on a um, Canaanite king. Um, but instead of celebrating and instead of um, offering up thanks to God, um, they begin to complain. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. Now, first time I read this, I thought this is a bit of an overreaction <laughs> on God's part. <laughs> because I spent most of my day moaning about not sure what to eat at home, or not sure what to drink, or should I have a cup of tea, or should I have a little grape. So, for God to then send snakes, I was actually a bit worried because I thought, this is something I do quite a bit. Um, and the Israelites, they've been walking around, they're going to be a bit tired, um, they've lost a bit of perspective, um, and then God comes in with some casual snakes that bite them, and then some of them die. Um, so, it's a bit overwhelming at first, and it's slightly concerning as well, but then when we... When we go back, when we go back, when we look at the text, when we see what is said, um, the Israelites are not complaining that they're hungry. They're complaining that the food God has given them isn't good enough. The food is miserable. Some translations say that we hate this horrible manna. Um, now, as most of us know, this manna um, was God's provision for the Israelites in the wilderness. It settled on the ground overnight, um, and in the morning they picked it up, um, and ground it and made it into cakes to eat. God was miraculously providing for his people and they were complaining. And not just complaining about the food, but complaining ultimately in God's provision. What God was providing for them was not good enough. Therefore, God is not good. He is holding out on them. He didn't want what's best for them. And they doubted his goodness. Even to the point that they doubted why God had taken them out of Egypt in the first place. And sadly, this is exactly what happens in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are hanging out in the garden. God's provided everything they need. And yet they are deceived into believing he hasn't. Through the lies of the snake, they doubt his goodness. And they believe the lie that God does not want what's best for them. And so they take the fruit. They doubt the provision that God has already given them. And I get this, like, I, I'm definitely someone who's not standing up here today going, I've got it all figured out. I literally do this every day. So please don't worry if you're not quite there yet. To live in the light, we must first know our darkness. And it starts with this. Us believing that God is not good. This is the root of sin. And it begins in the belief that our maker and our creator is not giving us what we think we need. 
Now, I'm sure, I hope, many of us in this room experience this wrestle with God. Um, and there have been times in my life where God has clearly told me, Susie, you need to stop, or Susie, you don't need to do this thing. And I've not listened to him because I thought I knew what I needed better than God knew. And as a result, I've actually had to pay the consequences. And mostly this has been because my majority of my life, probably for the last 14 or 15 years, has been struggling with my mental health and has been learning how to go through all this, learning how to live a healthy life and make these good decisions. And I'm quite fed up with it. Like, I remember thinking, oh, great, by the time I get to 25, I'll be fixed. And I was like, okay, 26. And then, oh, 27, nearly there. When I'm 30, it's, it's still going a bit. So that's not to, like, be, you know, not hopeful. It does get better. But I'm definitely a bit over it. Um, and so when times are coming up in my life where I'm like, yes, new season, cool, I can take this cool job. Yes, I can do this thing. And God said to me, Susie, you're not ready yet. There's more in this season that you need to look at. Because if you don't look at it now, it's going to come up later. I've ignored him. And I've pushed ahead and I've paid the consequences. I've doubted his goodness and I've acted out of my sin. Galatians 6, 7 to 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Now the natural consequences of sin are already at play in our universe and it is our choice what they will be. Adam and Eve and the Israelites found this out within their own lives. Now this is not because God is punishing them but rather the, world, the way our world has been created. For example, let's say I, for example, let's say I'm um, up on the roof and I think, I oh, know, I'm gonna set off this building. Now, if I break my legs, I'll probably actually die. If I die, or if I manage to survive a bit and break my legs, this isn't because God is punishing me. This is because we live in a universe that God has created with gravity, and the consequences of stepping off a building is that I'm gonna fall down. Adam and Eve, the Israelites, and also us in the room, have the ability to choose what we reap. To live in the light, we must first learn to recognize that part of living in a fallen world is that we will be dissatisfied and that discontentment can eventually lead to disobedience. So as soon as we believe the lie that God's provision is not good, we will turn away from our ultimate provider. And even if we get what we think we need, give it a day, give it a week, give it a few months, give it a few years, and it'll be something else. Sin is never satisfied. Adam and Eve literally lived in paradise and were dissatisfied. So in order for us, as followers of God, to live in the light, we must first need to be able to recognise this darkness inside of us. Not that, we are, not that we are bad or that we are doing something wrong or unholy, but it's the consequences of the sin that lives within us. Just because we are dissatisfied, just because we believe that God doesn't know what's best for us doesn't mean it's true. By understanding this darkness, it will allow us to recognise it and then choose to act against it. Point number two, the nature of our God. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but to save the world. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. But whoever lives in the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that they have done what has been done in the sight of God. Now this is quite a heavy verse. <laughs> and the seriousness of it, um, I think, really, really shows the seriousness of sin and what it can do to us, and also this ongoing struggle that the world has with God in this wrestle. Um, and the words that stand out to me instantly when I read it is perish, condemned, darkness, and evil. And this is a really challenging and difficult space for me to stand in and to think about my God. Um, but for us to learn how to live in the light, we must first understand God's response to the darkness, specifically his anger and his love. Now, the concept of anger terrifies me, and I'm pretty sure it probably scares a lot of other people in the room. Um, many of us have probably seen anger um, witnessed in a way that has not been wholly anger. Um, as humans, the majority of the anger we experience is based on self. Someone has hurt me, someone has offended me. Um, we are annoyed, we are frustrated. It is based on our own ego, our own wants and our own needs. Plus, we live in a society that really struggles with anger. Some of us, including myself, believe that anger is a negative emotion. Others may believe that anger and aggression are exactly the same thing. Our culture says things about anger being unladylike and that the only way to appear strong is to be angry. Even within the context of our church, anger is a difficult emotion to fit in this space. We have space for joy and we have space for sadness and crying and tears, but where is our time to be angry? Where is the space to feel this emotion that God has created us with? So of course, because of this, because of our own thoughts around anger, the concept of a God experiencing anger is gonna make us uncomfortable. And as a result, we tend to see God in either two ways. He's either A, a God full of love and full of kindness, unfazed by injustice and permissive of evil, or he is a harsh, rigid, un unpredictable, angry God, judging us and ready to smite us at any minute. So the Israelites are walking through the desert. They're really hangry and they begin moaning about the manna that God's provided for them. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, they bit the people, and many Israelites died. God appears in this verse to act suddenly and rashly. He doesn't come in and validate their feelings. He doesn't even give them a heads up and say, if you do this again, I'm going to send some snakes. They're moaning about their food, and then they're getting bitten by snakes. He appears unpredictable, um, unloving. Um, but he isn't. Our God isn't this way. Because the God we worship does not experience anger in the same way we do. God's anger is not rooted in selfishness, but it is rooted in love. God's anger is a holy anger and is a deep expression of his justice, his truth, and his overwhelming love for creation. God is neither a permissive God who doesn't mind bad things, or an unloving, harsh God who is just looking to punish. Rather, he is a loving God who is angry against sin. But why is such an overreaction? Well, that's what I think. Why is such a reaction? 
Because the Israelites are doubting his goodness. And eventually that doubt will lead to their own pain. It will lead to their disobedience. It will lead to their disconnection from God and ultimately their death. So God responds harshly and quickly. Not because he wants to smite them, but because he loves them. Because he cares for them. A good um, analogy to imagine is if um, someone finds like a cancerous lump and goes to the doctor. Now, from the outside it might seem like nothing. A small thing, like barely even noticeable. But the doctor that sees it knows where that could go. And he uses medical treatment which is harsh, which is serious, and which is quick to remove it. This lump isn't necessarily life-threatening, but it can be. It can lead to something threatening. God moves swiftly against the Israelites, not because of their moaning, but because of what the moaning can lead to. In our culture, the idea of love and condemnation seem to impose each other, but not with God. Our God is angry in love. The two establish, establish each other and work together. I remember being, um, I was up to Fadi Mahana, this like, I got sent, well not really sent, I chose to go to this mental health um, place in Golden Bay. Um, and I was uh, on program and there were, um, there's a whole group of us on there. And it's a bit overwhelming because you're living with a lot of other people that got a lot of issues, so there's often stuff going on. And there were two girls on program one day that were having an argument about something really stupid, like there's porridge in the pot and you didn't clean it, something like that. And I rem I'm, I'm quite a laid-back person. I don't really like anger. I try to just kind of stay hidden and just stick to myself. And yeah, I'm witnessing these two people that have had some of the hardest, most horrific, painful lives that I've ever heard, and now they're hurting each other. And out of nowhere, quite unlike me, I like jumped up, and they'd been like pushing each other, and I like pushed them apart, and I, I yelled, stop it, stop it, you are both so much more than this. Now, my anger was not because I hated them. My anger was because I loved them, because I saw them for so much more than what they could see themselves. To quote um, Rebecca Pippett, she's written this book called um, Hope Has a Reason. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. The fact is that anger and love are inseparably bound in human experience. If God were not angry over how we are destroying ourselves, then he wouldn't be good and he certainly wouldn't be loving. Anger isn't the opposite of love, hate is. And the final, final form of hate is indifference. How can a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Does he just play fast and loose with the facts? Oh, never mind, boys will be boys. Try telling that to a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields or to someone who lost an entire family in the Holocaust. No, to be truly God, to be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and irreplaceably hostile towards injustice. Our God is a loving, angry God. And through understanding his holy anger, we are able to turn to him in repentance. Rather than seeing God as a harsh, punitive God, or a loving, permissive God, we are able to see our real God, the one that stands up against us when we need him to the most. The Israelites recognised this. They turned back to God, they prayed for his healing, and in return, God provided their redemption. In the same way, we can recognise our darkness, understand our loving, angry, holy God and come back to him earnestly and openly, repenting of our sin and choosing his will over our own. And last point, the nature of our salvation. 
In Numbers 21, we read that the Israelites, as a result of their disobedience, have been bitten by snakes. Um, we read in Genesis that Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and have now been condemned to death. And we too, as people living within the same broken world, are doomed without a saviour. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. As humans, we are destined towards death, not because of anything God is doing, but because of what we are doing to ourselves. We live in a world that is deeply broken. And as a result of the fall, we carry this hole and this pain and this deep satisfaction within us. And it isn't just a wound that is carried by every single human, but is in all of creation. We need someone to save us from ourselves. Otherwise, naturally, we're going to turn to things within this world to try and fill that gap. Now, whether that is trying to find our meaning in our work or in our money or in our possessions and our status. Some of us try to find it in people or relationships in our families. But it's never enough. It never goes away. Not because these things that we're looking towards are necessarily bad, but because they're just as broken as we are. Broken plus broken does not equal fixed. It doesn't matter how much I try to fix myself with broken things, I'm not going to be fixed. Even practically, if I break a shoe and I think, oh, I've got a broken shoe, I know I'll fix it with some broken glue, I'm not going to have a fixed shoe. I'm still going to have a broken shoe. It's real, it's real obvious when you think about it. So. And the same is true about us. The same is true about us. If we're looking to things in this world that are broken and we think it's going to fix us, we're doing it wrong. And then we're going to feel that pain. God does not say these things to us because he's mean or doesn't like us. He's saying it because actually it totally makes sense and he really loves us and wants what's best for us. Simon Tugwell writes, It is the desire for God which is the most fundamental appetite of all and it is an appetite we can never eliminate. We may seek to disown it, but it will not go away. If we deny that it is there, we shall in fact only divert it to some other object or range of objects. And that will mean that we will invest in some creature or creatures the full burden of our needs for God, a burden which no creature can carry. What we need is something not broken by the fall. We need something outside of this universe to come in. What we need is a saviour, and our God was it. When the Israelites sinned, they got bitten by the venomous snakes. They repented of their darkness. They prayed for healing, and the Lord delivered them. Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on the pole. When anyone was bitten by a snake and looked up at the bronze snake, they lived. John 3, 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Just as Moses had up the bronze snake, an image of the Israelites, to, Israelites curse to heal them, God also held up a physical representation of the curse of the curse. <laughs> God also held up. God also held up a physical representation of our curse to heal us. But instead of us being on the curse, representing our sin, God held up His own Son. 
and place our curse on him. Jesus took our sin. He came to earth knowing our darkness and knowing where it would take us. Knowing that a loving, angry God cannot simply ignore the pain that we inflict on each other. He came to take that curse and the cross shows all of it. It shows the seriousness of sin. It shows the destruction of our sin. It shows the deep love of our God and the deep anger. And it's done. It is finished. Not because of what, now because of what Jesus has done, we can boldly approach God. We need not fear that our deeds are going to be exposed. We need not hide our sin in the darkness for fear of our God. Jesus hanging on a cross is the ultimate example of light and darkness. It shows the consequences of our darkness, the loving anger of our God, and where we need to look for our salvation. I reckon this, is, this has been one of the hardest sermons I've ever had to write. Because it's not just like one of those easy ones, like this guy went to this place and drank this thing. It's like, this is everything you believe in a verse. Now make sense of it and figure it out. And so I just want to add on a personal note. This isn't something that I figured out myself. And, but what I can say and what I know from experience is that I've spent my life trying to be good enough. I've spent my life trying to figure out my own sin. I've spent my life trying to stop myself from acting in ways that I think I shouldn't be acting because I think I know what's better. <coughs> I have avoided my brokenness through relationships, through alcohol, through overdoses, through self-harm. Um, I go out of my way and get so worried sometimes about not being good enough, being a good flatmate, being a good sister. You know? And I think a lot of the reason even doing this tonight was hard was because I want to be good. I want to do it well. Everything about this sermon represents who I am and what I do. And if I fail this, I fail at God and I'm not even a Christian. That kind of idea. Um, but the great thing is, is whether the sermon went well tonight or whether it didn't, it's actually okay. And whether you guys go from here and have, you know, make a lot of mistakes or don't make a lot of mistakes, it's still going to be okay. Because it isn't based on what we are doing. It is based on what Jesus has done. That is the cross. That is the light in the darkness. That is what it is to follow our God.